Today we continue in our studies in the letter of James, the book of James, and we're going to start with chapter 2. I've been asked our staff and, and some of our key leaders to continue praying for us. I don't know about you, but James has been very specific, hard for me. As I'm uh, reading, as I'm studying, I think I am the one who needed to hear more about this book than anybody else. And it's, um, it's a privilege for me to share with you and, and to continue studying this wonderful book that is so practical and has so much wisdom. Because it's the test that we need to prove if we really are who we say we are. The book of James actually is revealing for us how sincere we are in these days when we claim to be Christians. And I really uh, encourage you, if you are not reading this book, to completely read the, the, the whole letter and ask the Lord to speak to you the way that I have been asking him the same. Let me pray. Father, use your word to speak to us. And don't mind about my sinful mouth and my sinful thoughts to get in the way. Instruct us, Father, in Jesus we pray. Amen. In his uh, autobiography, the great Hindu leader, Mahatma Gandhi, wrote that during his student's day, he read the gospel seriously and considered, considered seriously converted to Christianity. He was fascinated by the way that Jesus Christ was teaching. He believed that in the teachings of Jesus, he could find the solution for the caste system that was dividing the people in India. So one Sunday morning, he decided to go to church. And when he got up early in the morning and went to the church, as soon as he entered into the worship center, he was received with one of the leaders, one of the archers. And when he looked at him, uh, the usher told him that he should go and try to find a church with his own people so he can worship. Gandhi left the Christian church the morning, and he never returned back. He said, and I quote, if Christians have a caste difference also, I might as well remain a Hindu. And that's precisely what he did. Gandhi turned away, was turned away by the Christian faith because of the sin of partiality. And that's exactly the kind of sin that we're going to talk today in James chapter 2, verses 1 to 13. The moral Behind the story of uh, Gandhi is this. Listen, it is impossible to judge another person's motives simply on the basis of the outward appearance or any other external factor. Let me repeat that again. It is impossible to judge another person's motives simply on the basis of outward appearance or any other external factor. No one, listen to me, no one can determine 
the heart of another person just for looking from outside. And that's what James is saying here in this chapter 2. He's talking about partiality, the prejudice and partiality that is wrong, in particular when it is played by many Christians. But what is partiality? Partiality, according to one definition, is the illegitimate distinction between individuals of different groups of people. It means procuring others because they are rich or influential or popular. It means someone who is demeaning or dismissing people based on an unbiblical criterion. It's when they abandon the biblical standard in order to fulfill a personal and crucial and cultural expectation. We have other words today for partiality. We use favoritism, prejudice, discrimination. Now, to be truth, the Bible is not against all partiality. It's not against all discrimination. It's not against all favoritism. For instance, we are supposed to be discriminated between good and evil. We are supposed to discriminate between righteous and unrighteousness. We are supposed to discriminate between light and darkness. We are supposed to discriminate between heaven and hell. So it's okay to be discriminatory about what God is discriminatory about. But it's not okay to be discriminatory about that which God has called it's okay. With this practical wisdom that characterized James, he is confronting the attitude of partiality that saturated the culture in his time. And sadly, it still saturates our culture today. And even what is more difficult to accept, the same attitude of partiality has made its way to the Christian church today. Partiality or favoritism violates the three tests that James was talking about, how you prove that you have a true religion, how you prove that you have a real faith. In the last verses of chapter 1, remember, when he talks about control your speech, when he talks about care for those who are in a disadvantage, the orphans, the widows, and many others, when he talks about remain yourself, keep yourself away from contamination, from the pollution of the world, the way that we know those things are true is when we put it in practice. And one of the things that James is telling us in this beginning of chapter 2 is that we need to be impartial. We need not to play favoritisms. Because knowing this is not enough if we are not actually practicing it. The gospel is personal, but it's not private. The gospel is not about me, 
and my salvation. The gospel is about what is doing in me so I can tell others what God is able to do in me so he can do also to them. You know, every human being deserves dignity, love, and value. You know why? Because every human being was created by God to bear his image. The Imago Dei is in every human being. It doesn't matter if the person is a believer in Christ or not. Just because he's a human being deserves dignity, love, and value. That's why it's not okay to discriminate against anyone, any other human being. Then the fall of man came, alienating everybody from God and from one another. And since then, there has been division and hostility between races, ethnicities, genders, and classes, and so on. Then the good news. The Redeemer came to reconcile us to the Father and to one another. Jesus' prayer in John 17 is this precisely. He was asking the Lord to bring from all his followers to become one. The way that he and the Father were one, he wanted them to become united, one, so the world can, can believe who is the one who sent them. And as we have fellowship to one another as believers in Christ, it's just a foretaste of what Revelation 7 will be. One day, all believers from every nation, from every tongue, from every tribe, will be worshiping God the Father and the Lamb forever and ever in heaven. So when we get to James chapter 2, we'll continue expanding our understanding about what the true religion what the true faith is all about. And we will do so by grasping this central idea. Listen, if you are true, if you have a true saving faith, if the faith that you have is real, if the saving faith that you hold, that you believe is real, then you will practice impartiality. You will practice impartial love. Are you free from the preoccupation with what people have? Are you trying to go to certain person because of his wealth, influence, or position? Do you love and learn from the rich in faith that he talks about? Those who are poor in spirit but rich in faith? Those who have so much trust in the Lord? So James will help us to respond to these two questions as he presents this case in three different points. One, he's going to introduce a principle in verse 1. And then he will illustrate the point in verse 2 to 4. And lastly, in the remaining verses from 5 to 13, he will help us to apply that principle into our lives. As simple as that. So please open your Bibles on James chapter 2. We're going to camp on the first 13 verses. And we're going to start with the first one, the principle. The principle is in verse 1. Listen. My dear brothers and sisters, 
He's talking to the church. He's speaking to those who believe in God. He's addressing this letter to those who have already been saved by the blood of Christ. They know about Christ. They are going through difficulties, times, testing, trials. So he's addressing this to, to them. It's a way of changing the subject with the things that he was doing in chapter 1, but at the same time, confirming what he already said. My dear brothers and sisters, how can you claim to have faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ if you favor some people over others? James clearly is stating his point here. This is the principle. Faith in Christ and partiality are incompatible. Faith in Christ and Christianity, faith in Christ and partiality are incompatible. The command here is very straightforward. Do not. In other words, show no impartiality. Show no partiality, I'm sorry. Show no partiality. He's addressing believers. They know. They got the right theology. The problem is they were behaving wrongly because they obviously were showing certain partiality. So the issue is not what they believe or in whom they believe. The issue is that they were not practicing what they believe. And that's the problem with the church today. And that's the problem with all of us. I'm included. I'm the first one. Get in line. Something was wrong with the church. The attitude that accompanies this faith didn't fit. So they were showing partiality. The, the word partiality or personal favoritism came from a compound word in, in Greek. And, and, and that word is, is really interesting. Because the, the meaning of the word communicates the idea of receiving the face. The face. In the process of looking at people's faces and identify certain characteristics of their physical appearance, it might be their status, facial characteristics, if he's handsome or not, or ethical, or ethnic background, whatever it might be. The characteristics that we see is what compels us to do something or not to do something to someone. So this is the idea of judging a book by the cover. This is the way that we react when we see. If we see a person parking right there in a beautiful brand new car, a Mercedes-Benz or maybe a Tesla or whatever, and we look at it, and the way that we try to approach to invite this person to come to the church or to the building, or, or maybe when we see a, an old beat-up Honda that barely make it, and it's putting a lot of pollution with the smoke that is coming from the thing, and we just leave it there. Something like that is what James is trying to explain. Judging on the externals, the clothes, the cars, the color of the skin, rather than the, the internal, the character, which is actually where the Lord looks. To put it bluntly, when I show partiality or favoritism, I accept some faces and I reject others based entirely on the features that I like or I dislike. It's not only happening to us. 
It happened even to those who were closer working with the Lord. Remember Prophet Samuel? Prophet Samuel in 1 Samuel chapter 16, he did, he made the same mistake. The Lord told Samuel, the prophet of the day, Samuel, I want you to go in the house of Jesse. There is a guy named Jesse, I want you to go to his house because the king that the people of Israel selected is not doing well. So I'm going to know a new king. So go to Jesse's home. He has a few boys. I will anoint one of them. I will tell you which one. So he went to the house of Jesse. He told him exactly what I told him. And he says, I uh, brought some oxen. We're going to have a barbecue after that. But first I need to select who's going to be the anointed king. Bring me your sons. And he brought, you know, he has seven sons. He brought six of them. And the first one, Eliab. And he was tall and handsome and very strong. And, and, and Samuel says, this must be the one. It's handsome. It's strong. It has to be the one. It was the same way when they selected Saul the king. He was tall and handsome. There must be a king. But it's something about the appearance that made people think that that has the profile of a king. But the Lord told him in 1 Samuel 6, 7, Nope. No, Samuel, don't judge by his appearance or height, for I have rejected him. The Lord doesn't see things the way that you see them. People judge by outward appearance, by the Lord looks at the heart. You know the rest of the story. If you're not, I will encourage you. First Samuel 16, read it. It's fascinating. Because after Eliab, they were coming the other ones, one by one. And the Lord says, nope. Nope, not that one, not that one. And then Samuel was desperate, turned to Jesse and said, Jesse, do you have any other son? Oh, I don't think that would be the one. He's the smallest. And the word smallest actually in the Hebrew, it means might be the youngest or might be the smallest in height, which I feel so comfortable reading that. <laughs> and he's... He said, bring it to me. So he asked for him, and he came. And as soon as he entered the room, the Lord told Samuel, this is the one. This is my anointed one. In other words, yeah. This is the one, he says. He was dark and handsome with beautiful eyes. That's the description that the scripture says about David. That means that God can use good-looking people as well. In other words, it looks like might help the credibility of the people when, when, when the looks, the outward looks of a person came to be. But the good news and the bad news for so many is that God doesn't look the outward appearance. He is more concerned about the character of the person. He looks into their hearts. So when James wrote 2,000 years ago, this letter, he was the lead pastor of the church in Jerusalem. The church was going through a tough time. It was difficulties. Not only the persecution against the Christians, but also there were a lot of situations. The government was really doing some horrible things to, to the believers in Jerusalem. There were a lot of poor people in that church. Remember Paul, when he was writing the letters, he was collecting some money from the Gentile new believers Sending send money because our brothers and sisters in Jerusalem church are perishing. We need to help them. 
There, there were a lot of problems. And one of the problems that were happening in the church is exactly this sin of partiality. So the congregation was having a class problem, but also an affluence problem. There seems to be the same kind of caste society that we experience in our days. They probably were having race problems, ethnicity problems, gender problems, class problems, affluence problems, ancestry problems, affinity problems, and education problems. Because you know what? God has shown us that he can use a PhD the same way that he can use a GED. Just for his kingdom. This whole shono partiality thing, this favoritism is so subtle. We all can do it without realizing it. We don't mean to be partial, but we constantly make assumptions about people. Not so, I mean, this past week, I was just, I decided to go to a coffee shop just to study, just to be an interrupter, and I spent a few hours there. Believe it or not, I was studying. I was doing my devotional, my, my studies for this sermon. And then I was looking at people who were coming and going, coming and going. And I was looking, wow, that person is so tall. Oh, that person is good looking, look, looking. I was doing it myself. And I was studying exactly this verse. So it's so subtle. We all can do it without knowing it. Tall, short, skinny, fat, good looking, not so good looking, whatever it is. It seems to be happening in our heads all the time. Hey, look how Pastor Carlos is dressing today. He's not untucking his shirt. What happened with him? He looks like he didn't sleep. No, I didn't sleep. So how do you get over the brown nosing over people? How, how can we overcome this sin of partiality? James gave us the answer right there in the middle of the verse. To get captivated by Jesus Christ. Because he is the glorious Jesus Christ. To have faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, that's, that's his title. Jesus, that's his human name. And Christ, that's exactly his job description. And he is glorious. Because no one is like him. If you think you're rich, you're not rich enough. Christ is richer than you. If you think you are better, you are not better enough. Because Christ is perfect. He has to be the measure. So James is reminding them, don't be partial because at the end of the day, the only one who is perfect is Christ. He is the one that you need to measure yourself with. You, you, you heard that saying. The ground is level at the foot of the cross. We are all equal. We're all sinners. We desperately need Jesus. So no, there is no one better than the other one. Oh, I'm not a sinner as so and so. Sin is sin. It doesn't matter how you present it. Sin is sin. The only thing that we can come to the cross and give something is our sinful behavior. So we need to look at everyone through the eyes of Christ. If the visitor is a Christian, we can accept him because Christ lives in him or her. 
is a visitor, is a non-Christian, we can accept him because Christ died for him or her. So there is no excuse. All of them are valuable before God's, God's eyes. We need to think about this law of love that he talks about here. Appearances can be misleading. So we must adopt God's point of view in how we treat people. Because among God's people, there is no favoritism over one person of another one. So show no partiality. You want to say it in Spanish? No muestres parcialidad. Show no partiality. Number two, the principle illustrated in the next verses. Let's see the setting. James is very practical. He doesn't want to leave the readers with just a command. He's going to explain it, what that means. For example, he says in verse 2, Suppose that someone comes to your meeting dressed in fancy clothes and expensive jewelry, wearing a big ring. How many of you were in a Texas name ring? I'm sorry, no, that's a different one. And another comes with a poor and dressed in dirty clothes. The setting that James is illustrating here is a meeting or assembly. It's so interesting because when, when we read this verse, we, we might think that it's a church, but it's not the church. It's the synagogue. In the early days when Christian, when Jewish were becoming Christian, they were meeting in the synagogues. Then the traditional Christian were, I mean, traditional Jewish people that were not believers in Christ were, were getting upset and they kicked them out. But when they were meeting in homes and in other places, they called, let's, 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 let's have a gathering. Let's meet in the synagogue. They call it that way, even though it was not an official synagogue. So at the beginning, that's the name. So whatever this means, you need to, to think about what is the meeting, the assembly, the place that you selected for worship. Might be your home, might be your worship, might be the local church. That's the place. So when somebody comes, and visit you in that place, what is exactly what you can do? When Mr. Mr. Hepfall comes and then follow him is Mr. Don't have enough, what is your reaction to both of them when they come and visit? You say, what would you do? James gives us the response. In James' illustration, the usher is blinded by the bling bling, chink, kachin, kachin. And so the rich man gets the VIP treatment. Look, verse 3. If you give special attention to a good and a good seat to the rich person, but you say to the poor one, you can stand over there or else sit in the floor. Well, if we escorted the one man in front because he's rich, he's influential, and we send the second one, to the back corner because he's poor. Our motives are not right. And that's what verse 4 says. In verse 4, James is announcing his verdict. Doesn't this discrimination show that your judgment are guided by your evil motives? So the archer is guilty of discrimination. He's making distinction. He's becoming a judge, not with the objective, with clarity, objectivity, but evil motives. He's playing favorites, thinking it will win him favor with this influential person. 
or maybe by giving a special treatment to that person, he will receive something in return later, a favor, a contribution. James couldn't be so clear. This kind of partiality is wrong, is sin. You hear me? Sin. If there is one place where class distinctions has no place, it is the place of worship. In the place of worship, there is no skin color, ethnicity, political affiliation, financial status, fashion, appearance. We need to leave all of that outside the door. Because before the cross, we are all the same in God's eyes. Lastly, the principle applied in our lives. The remaining verses is telling us three reasons why partiality is wrong. Number one, partiality is incongruent with God's methods. Verse five, listen to me, dear brothers and sisters. Hasn't God chosen the poor of this world to be rich in faith? Aren't they the ones who will inherit the kingdom he promised to those who love him? Those are rhetorical questions. He's not expecting an answer. James is saying here that partiality toward some people for financial gain and rejection of the poor because of his poor condition is not right. William Berkeley noticed this when he says, the great characteristic of God is his complete impartiality. And he says, James is not shutting the door on the rich. Far from that. He is saying that the gospel of Christ is especially dear to the poor and that in it there is a welcome for the man who has none to welcome him and that through, through it there is a value on the man who is the world regards as valueless. James is simply saying that from God's perspective, the real issue is the condition of the soul, not the condition of the wallet. Paul agrees with him. In 1 Corinthians 1.25 says, The foolish plan of God is wiser than the wisest of human plans. And God's weakness is stronger than the greatest of human strength. Remember, dear brothers and sisters, that few of you were wise in the world's eyes and powerful or wealthy when God called you. Instead, God shows things in this world that this world considers foolish in order to shame those who think they're wise. And he shows things that they were powerless to shame those who were powerful. God chose things despised by the world, things counted as nothing at all, and used them to bring to nothing what the world considers important. As a result, no one can ever boast in the presence of God. Before the cross, we are all equal. The reason, number two, is not only because partiality is incongruent with God's method, this is a theological reason, but also a logical reason. Partiality ignores the universality of sin, verse six. But you honor the poor, isn't this the rich who oppress you and drag you into a court? Aren't they the ones who slander Jesus Christ, whose noble name you bear? James is, 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 has an enigma. It has a big question mark. Why are you doing that, Christians? Why are you trying to favor and do a special treatment with the, with the rich? 
They are the one who humiliate you. They are the one who use you, and then you are groaning in their noses. For lack of a better term. Why, why you do that? They don't like you. But you're still there. You want to be associated with them. He's confronting them. James is asking these questions. He's encouraging these Jewish believers to find themselves in a position they can evaluate how strong is their faith. He's telling them, these rich people were the ones who were persecuting you. And also he's telling them, they are the ones who are blaspheming Christ. And you, you, you still want to associate it with them? And then the third reason why partiality is wrong is biblical. Because partiality is inconsistent with God's word, with the scripture. Verse 8 says, yes, indeed, it is good when you obey the royal law as found in the scriptures. Love your neighbor as yourself. But you favor some people over others. You are committing a sin. You are guilty of breaking the law. For the person who keeps all the laws except, except one is as guilty as the person who broke them all of God's laws. For the same God who says you must not commit adultery also said you must not murder. murder. So if you murder someone but do not commit adultery, you have still broken the law. James is saying, kill somebody, commit adultery with somebody. And if you are partial to somebody, you show up with it. It's the same. It's sin. And God despises it. So don't do that. Don't show partiality. Centuries before, Moses said in Leviticus 19, 18, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And this is part of the Shema. This is so important for the Jewish people today. And that's important for the Christian because Jesus summarized the Ten Commandments and the 916 precepts that explain the Ten Commandments in two. It says, love God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. That's the royal law. That's the law of love. Love God. And the way that you demonstrate your love for God is when you love your neighbor. Don't say you love God and you hate your neighbor. He's confronting them. He's confronting me. He's confronting you. Because you show partiality. If you show discrimination. If you show prejudice toward others. Believers or not, you're committing the sin. Would it be nice if our, all our relationships were guided by the real love? royal law of love but the fact is that we are certain that we are built in in many prejudices that influence our way of thinking some old prejudices against divorced people oh that person cannot serve because has been divorced really prejudice about emotional disabled oh that person that person has this condition or is mentally ill or whatever Prejudice against different political views, political parties. <laughs> we are so politicized, polarized today. Oh, this group, not necessarily because they are from a different ethnicity or a different race. By the way, 
There is only one race that is important for God. And you know which one is? The human race. Other than that, it's your invention. There is only one race that he cares, and it's the human race. He sees no color. He sees no ethnicity. He sees no social. He sees no caste. There are two apples in the tree, and they're looking down to the world. And the first apple says to the other one, look, look at these men, these human beings, fighting each other, robbing, rioting each other. No one seems to be willing to get along with their fellow men. Someday, we apples will be the only ones left, and then we'll rule the world. And the other apple says, which one of us, the red or the green ones? So when we play favorites, we imply that God plays favorites. You know what? Because if you say you are a follower of Christ, if you play favorites, you are telling others that God plays favorites. Because they don't know God, but they know you. And the way that you behave is what they think about your God that you represent. That's the problem with partiality. Remember, in Job 34, we read this, and this is so interesting. God is telling Job this. Is he not the one who says to kings, you are worthless, and the nobles, you are wicked? Who shows no partiality to princes and does not favor the rich or the poor? That's our God. That's the God that you believe. He has no partiality. He has no show, show no partiality. So if you are truly a believer of Christ, you need to be like him. So would you agree that the scriptures are crystal clear where God says that he has no partiality, no show? Do you really believe that the Bible says that the God that we believe has no favorites? So if that is the case, then how we there as Christians, representatives, cause people to doubt this truth by the way that we show partiality to others? For God, he doesn't treat millionaires better than welfare recipients. He doesn't favor whites over blacks. He doesn't favor Asian over Hispanics. He doesn't favor males over females or young over the old. God doesn't show favoritism, period. He doesn't do that. We all have an unwritten law, royal law in our hearts. I love you if you don't speak with an accent. I love you if you dress in a certain way. I love you if you are educated. I love you is this, I love you is that, and the list is endless. So many conditions. God says, come as you are. I love you, period. Yeah. Now, for some of you who might think James is a little harsh here, Just read verse 2, 12 and 13. So whatever you say or whatever you do, remember that you will be judged by the law that sets you free. There will be no mercy for those who have no sh shown no mercy to others. But if you have been merciful, God will be merciful when he judged you. Well, it is true that some sins may be more atrocious than other ones. Before God's eyes, all sin is sin. 
So James brings these takeaways from us. Three important takeaways for you. Number one, let the scriptures be the standard, not the way that you were raised. Let the scriptures be the standard, not the way how you were raised. Instead of accusing yourself, this is the way that I grew up. This is how my father treated me. This is how is this part of my ethnicity. This is my background. This is because, because I'm German and I'm always angry. Don't make excuses. Let God change you, the way you think, the way you speak, the way you act, the way you live according to his word. Let the scripture be your standard. Number two, let love be your law. The royal law. Let law be your law. Some of the neatest people that you might find are the ones who have received the worst kinds of prejudice responses. Maybe you don't like them, but I want you to think, why this person is like this? And you will find out if you give the time and ask the questions that something happened to the person. Before you respond, you might think, how can I love this person? What is needed to, how, how can I help to build up this person if, instead of destroying it with my, my comments? And number three and last, let mercy be your message. Let mercy be your message. The individual who is motivated by the low law will radiate mercy in his or her relationships. When we see a brother and sister in sin, we need to ask two questions before we respond. Because we don't know how hard this person has been. We don't know the power of the forces that are keeping this person in the ground. We don't know. So if we show mercy, we will be shown mercy. Because mercy overrides judgment. I got a $100 bill, new. Crisp, beautiful, <sighs> smells good. But if I got this dollar bill and I crush it, it's a crushed dollar bill, but it still has its value, right? If I spit on this dollar bill, <laughs> it's crushed and it's spit on, but it still remains his value. If I throw it to the floor, it might be crashed, it might be spit on, it might be rejected, but it still has its value. I can step on it. And with all that, crashed, spit on, rejected, smashed, it still retains its value. You and around to people who has been crushed up in their life, who has been spit on. People who, in many ways, have been rejected. People who, in many ways, have been smashed up. And that person might think he or she has no value. But that person is valuable. He retains the value because he's made in the image of God. And he is expecting that the church, you and me, can accept them, can embrace them, can welcome them because they are valuable to God. 
Even they don't look like you. They don't sound like you. They don't dress like you. So unlike the moral story of Gandhi, our lives are real stories that are constantly being transformed. But may the love of love be in your heart so you can start loving your neighbor the way that God has loved us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for, for loving us the way that you love us. Thank you because we know, Father, based on what we read in your word, that we have value despite of the circumstances in our lives, despite that the treatment that we receive from others. You accept us, you love us just as we are. But thank you, Father, also for reminding us that we, as your sons and daughters, we need to learn to exercise this wonderful law of love and start accepting others, not accepting their preferences, not accepting what they do, their behavior, but accepting them because you love them. Christ died for them, and you are welcoming them in your house, in your presence. And so we, Father, are commanded by James here, ultimately through you, from you, that we need to love others and accept them and show no partiality, no discrimination, no prejudice, no favoritism. Just help us, Father. Only through the power of your Holy Spirit we can do that. And it's in the power of your Holy Spirit, by the power conquered on the cross by your Son, Jesus Christ, that we ask you this, Father. Let us start today as we appreciate others the way that you love them. In Jesus we pray. And everybody says.